It was a wonderful time these last two days with uh, close to a quarter of the men from our church gathered uh, around God's Word, praying together, having fun together, studying together. So uh, thank you for all you who made sacrifices so that uh, the men could go. Thank you men who, if you're as tired as I am and uh, are still here, I'm glad you've come out on Sunday morning. Uh, we are continuing for the next few weeks Galatians before we uh, break from Galatians to focus in on Christmas. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open uh, to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. If you're, using a, if you're using the Bible that looks like this, it's on page 974. We're going to be reading Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 4, 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his, his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, every time we gather, we're aware that it is it is what's needed is a supernatural work of your spirit. I know that I am not a strong and clear enough communicator to penetrate into souls. And we collectively know that we are dull enough of hearing and slow enough of heart that unless your spirit is working, we have little chance to make any progress or to be truly encouraged. And so it is our prayer right now that in whatever's going to happen in this next bit of time, it would be under the reign of your spirit and used of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We sang a couple Christmas songs this morning. I know there are those who are like, yeah, don't turn the Christmas music on until the last minute, and there's others like me who love Christmas. I remember as a kid longing for Christmas Day. I could feel in my body the anticipation of Christmas coming. When we'd go, I'd go out with my dad and put up the Christmas lights, and we'd drive around and look at the Christmas lights. And we'd put up the tree and decorate the house, and the Christmas cards would start coming in. And each day you're getting more and more excited. And on Christmas Eve, I remember my body was like my skin was crawling with excitement. I couldn't contain myself. I'd 
when I was little, I'd have to try and fall asleep with anticipation. When I was older, I'd try and stay up the whole night so I could be ready for Christmas morning. Longing. Longing. It's a powerful kind of desire. There's all sorts of different things we long for. Maybe you remember, as a teenager, longing for the day you would get your driver's license. You were just aching to be able to drive. Many people, once they're engaged, long for their wedding day, counting down the days. Or maybe you're longing for the day you finally graduate and are done with school. The passage before us this morning is about longing. Waiting for a highly anticipated moment. And it begins, it begins with a story of deep longing. It's a story of an heir. Someone who, based on their bloodline, is due to inherit a massive inheritance, a massive amount of money. It's told in verses 1 and 2. Just, just picture this. Kind of taking a little bit of liberties with this, but I just want us to get the sense. So you have, you're, you have a filthy, rich father, and he's endowed to you $2 million. But there's one catch. He stipulated that you don't get to inherit that money until you turn 18. And you're only 12 years old. You want to buy an iPhone so bad. But you can't. You walk through the mall. Oh, if I just could get those shoes. If I could just buy that hat. But you can't. You want to buy all the sweets in the whole world. But you can't. I'm going to think of it, maybe it's a good idea that the dad said you can't have the money until you're 18. You get the idea. You just want your 18th birthday to come so badly, and you're going to spend the next six years of your life counting down until that day. You're in a position of longing. It's yours, but, but it's not yet yours. You know it's coming. And when it does, it'll change everything. But that moment hasn't come yet. And time can't move fast enough. Now in the ancient version of this story, the wealthy father has also hired a guardian to raise his child. Remember last week we learned that the guardian was an educated and trained slave who would raise and educate the children. A kind of combo nanny and tutor. Now, that's important because there's an irony that verses 1 and 2 point out in this story. Though the child is an heir to a fortune, he is at that moment not all that different from a slave. He's being raised by a slave. The money's not yet his. And he's not free to do as he pleases. So yes, he's an heir, but at a certain level, he's no different than a slave. That is, until. 
You see that word in verse 2? Under guardians and managers, until the date set. Until, in our story, he turns 18. Until that date when he moves from being just like a slave to being a true millionaire. Now, I tried to have a little fun with the story, and even if we've had a little fun with the story, I want us to feel the longing. An heir, just like a slave, under a guardian, until the date set by his father. What is he longing for? Oh, may that day come quickly. Do you feel it? That's the story of verses 1 and 2. A story of deep longing. Then verse 3 comes. And it tells us that the longing in the story correlates to a very real longing. The longing of the Jew under the law. Like in last week's passage, Paul uses the word we to describe himself and his fellow Jews. So if you're looking along, you might have noticed in verse 6, he switches back from we to you. And when he says you, he's meaning all the Galatians. But now his focus is on the Jews. And he talks about, he says, in the same way, verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved. And when he talks about being enslaved, He's saying that they're under a provisional guardian for a season. We Jews, he's saying, were enslaved too. We lived in a season of longing for a true inheritance. Now I want to put this differently. What Paul's saying is that the heir was a slave prior to Christ's coming. The heir was a slave prior to Christ's coming. Now, we know from what we read last week that he's talking about being enslaved to the law. So look up at chapter 3, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So the law, the law is what he's talking about when he describes this Guardian from the illustration before. That means the Jewish people were all eagerly awaiting the time when God's promised inheritance would become theirs. But while they waited for the coming of the Messiah, they were under a guardian. They were enslaved. And they waited. They longed. My deliverer is coming, they'd sing. And they'd wait for their deliverer. They'd wait for the promised one. They'd wait. When would that day come? So verse 3 is describing a Jewish longing. But here's what's interesting. Given what we read at the end of chapter 3, we expect verse 3 to read like this. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the law. 
But it doesn't say that. It says, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now just look down a little bit at verse 9, because we see this elementary principles of the world again. And he's now talking to you. That means all the Galatians, Jews and Gentiles. And he says, worthless and elementary worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. In other words, you used to, Jews and Gentiles, be enslaved to these elementary principles. So instead of telling the Jews that they're enslaved to the law, the point he's already made quite explicit in chapter 3, he's telling them they're enslaved to the very same thing that all people are enslaved to. Elementary principles of the world. That means, basically it means the basic building blocks of how our world works. These elementary principles are the underlying assumptions and values that are shared within our world. And one of those elementary principles is this idea of self-righteousness, earning your standing, earning your place. A sense that I need to do good things, whatever is determined those good things are, in order to climb the ladder of my own righteousness, in order to perform and show how good I am, in order to prove that I measure up. That kind of thinking is just bedrock to how our world tends to think. It is an elementary principle. So whether it is a God-given law, like the Old Testament law that Moses brought, or whether it is a man-made system, the effect is the same. You and I are enslaved. The Jew, enslaved under the law. The Gentile, enslaved under whatever system he's made for himself. So, this is why I'm getting into all this. Because when verse 3 exchanged law, which is what we'd expect, for elementary principles... Paul's making a very deliberate move. He's saying that, in effect, the Jew and the non-Jew are both alike under the same yoke. That heavy yoke of performance. That yoke of prove your worth by your behavior. And some of you here this morning are feeling the weight of that same yoke. You feel it. I, I just need to do this, and then I'll measure up. I just need to do this, and then I'll be respected. I just need to do this, and then I'll fit in. I need to. I need to. I need to. And like the Jews of old, then, you're enslaved. But this is a passage about longing. And I want to say to you, that enslavement that you feel is meant to create in you a longing. It should make you long to be free freed from all that burden for that yoke that weight to be lifted the longing of the Jews of old 
is the longing we should all feel. It's the longing that a slave feels when he's longing for his freedom, longing for redemption. It's the slave an orphan feels when he's longing to belong to a family, to be adopted. We long to be free from the weight of our slavery to the elementary principles, to be free from the weight of trying to perform, of trying to prove our righteousness, of trying to earn God's favor. We need freedom from that. We need redemption. And we long in our hearts to be reunited with God. Welcome back to the family of the one who created us. We long for that, so we need adoption. So as we sit about here this morning, and some of us feel this enslavement, let it create in you a longing, a longing for redemption, a longing for adoption. Do you feel those aches? Does your body and sometimes even your skin ache with this, I need something to deliver me. I need something to lift this. Do you feel those longings? Well, if verses 1 and 2 tell us a story of deep longing, and verse 3 tells us that those deep longings were felt by Jew and Gentile alike, all who were enslaved to the elementary principles, Verses four and seven, four to seven, are the payoff. This is where the passage pops. Because all that longing is about to be fulfilled. The teenager is about to get his driver's license. The bride is about to walk down the aisle, but it's far, far more significant than either of those. What it is. Is Christmas morning. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is the third section of our our sermon, last section, verses 4 to 7, the longing fulfilled. And it says, when the fullness of time had come. When the time of waiting had reached its end. When the cup of longing was full to the brim. When God knew this is the right time to bring about the fulfillment of all that longing. God sent His Son Merry Christmas. God sent His Son. And it's going to tell us why He sent His Son. That's in verse 5. But before it tells us why He sent His Son, it gives us these two qualifiers. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Why does Paul include those two qualifiers? Why not just get right to the point of why God sent His Son? Why be so wordy? Well, I will assure you, it's not just wordiness. 
these verses are pregnant with significance. There's a pun there. They speak of Jesus' full humanity. And we could do well just to dwell there. To try and get into our, uh, get a grasp in our minds as to this idea of the eternal Son of God who existed in the eternity past as a spirit and not a human being, choosing to take on flesh, to even go into the womb of a woman in order to redeem humanity. And being bound, not just for a little season to flesh, but from that point into eternity future, From that point on, fully God and fully man. I mean, what humiliation. What condescension. What wondrous love. But I actually don't think that Paul put these here, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put these here, simply to make a theological addendum about Jesus' humanity. I think they're put here to help us feel the longing. To help us feel the longing. Look at the phrase, born of a woman. Born of a woman. I want you to take a little journey with me. Back at the beginning, when God created everything really, really good, Adam rebelled. He rebelled against God and said, I'm going to do things my way, not your way. Rejected his rule. And what, un- what was unleashed upon humanity at that point was sin and death. Everything that's foul and broken in this world, whoosh, spreading across the world like some dark, poisonous gas that pervades everything, spreading to all of Adam's progeny. But in that moment, in that moment, immediately after this rebellion, God comes along and he says something to the man, he says something to the woman, and he says something to the serpent who is the enemy of God, who was the one who enticed Eve that eventually Adam got pulled in with as well. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, snake, And her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. You see what he's saying? Through the woman. Through an offspring of the woman. Through someone born of woman. The snake would be crushed. The very moment that it all went foul. And then, from that point on, in Genesis 3, all the way along in the Old Testament, you're going, when's it going to be? When's it going to happen? When's the one born of a woman going to come and make all that's right, all that's wrong, right? And crush the serpent's head. And so finally, you you hear Abraham. Abraham's going to have a child. Oh, is that the one? Nope, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Jacob has 12 sons. And then Judah says, you're going to be the one with the scepter, the king. You're like, oh, maybe it's Judah. No, waiting, waiting, longing. Who's going to be the one born of a woman? Who's going to make it all right? Who's going to be the one? And we go along. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, even to King David. King David, finally, a man after God's own heart. He's going to be the one. You see him doing all these things to bring blessing and rescue and all these right things. And then all of a sudden, the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And you're going, oh, it's not him either. And the longing builds. Is it Solomon? Nope. And the longing mounts. So when Paul comes along and he says, born of a woman, he's not merely stating a biological reality. He's tapping into the very promise of God that was delivered when the fall first happened, that one born of a woman would be the one to redeem. And he's saying, God sent forth of his son and born of a woman. What was longed for all through the Old Testament as a way for the world to be redeemed, that one is here. The universal rescuer, the hope for the whole world, the one who would redeem humanity from Adam's universal curse, he's here. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And then it says, born under the law. And it's another journey of longing. Because as we saw, God did choose Abraham. And then through his offspring established the Jewish people as the ones through whom the world rescuer would come. But he sets up a system of laws for them. Now we've talked a lot about this system of laws, but it was a beautiful system specifically designed by God to create achings and longings in his people for example the temple the temple created a longing to be near to god how can we dwell with god to be truly in his presence to actually abide with him where he's not just in a temple building but he actually i can abide with him the priestly system it was created it was created to to cultivate longing within us for someone who can be a true and lasting and final mediator between me and God. You think of the sacrificial system, which was created to cultivate a longing for a once and for all sacrifice that could actually deal with the problem of my sin instead of patching it over it with an animal sacrifice over and over again. Now, these are just some of the beautiful ways that the law caused us to yearn for the day when the fulfillment of all, all of that would come. But I don't think any of them are quite the main idea in view here. The law also laid out an impossibly high standard. And in doing that, it created a longing. The standard of righteousness laid out wasn't a man-made standard. It was the God-made standard. And it was pretty explicit. Do this and you'll live. Don't do it and you'll be cursed. This was a God-ordained, works-based system of righteousness. 
And you had to live an unblemished life under the law in every regard, or you would fall short of the entrance requirements into God's blessed kingdom. Now that is an immense burden. We talked about a weight or a yoke. That is it. But God designed that burden not because He wanted us to have to fulfill it perfectly. He actually designed that burden to make us long for something. It made you long to be free from the yoke. It made you long to be free from the indwelling sin that kept you from being able to fulfill the law that you could see was good. And perhaps, though for some I think subconsciously, it made them long for one who would be born under the law and fulfill it perfectly on our behalf. It made you long for one who could take the weight off your shoulders but place it on his own shoulders and carry it for us. So as you read the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law is given in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, you see this yoke just carried by the people all throughout and the prophets are coming along saying, You're failing miserably. You're not following God's standards at all. But there's one coming who'll be bruised for our iniquities. You see, they're creating a longing. And the Jews wait, burdened. They wait. Under the yoke of the law, they wait until until God sent His Son born under the law. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. He's born of a woman, signaling He's the rescuer of the world, and He's born under the law, signaling He's the rescuer of the Jews. So now do you see why Paul is including these little phrases? He's tapping into the deep longing that coursed throughout the whole Old Testament. That's just those two qualifiers. But let's get back to looking at why God sent His Son. That's verse 5. So God sends forth His Son. It says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. He was born, particularly born under the law, to redeem those enslaved by the law. And why did God want to redeem the Jews that were enslaved to the law? So that they could receive adoptions as sons. He sent His Son so that they could be His sons. Now, I want to engage in a little theological imagination right now. I want you with me to just think back to some moment in eternity past. And there's the triune God, the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoying perfect harmony and peace and love and joy in the community and fellowship that they share. 
And it's the most wonderful, it's the most wonderful thing that could possibly be experienced. And I don't know how a spirit talks to another spirit, but in some way, perhaps, God the Son says to God the Father, this beautiful fellowship we share, this beautiful community that we share, we should share it with others and let others experience the same blessedness. And so, the triune God creates. He creates a world. And He creates people who rebel against Him, who eventually sends His Son to redeem. But as He sends them to redeem them, it's so that through faith they can be united with Him. And not just be regarded as, as these human creations, which they were, but can be regarded as sons. He does it so that anyone who places their trust in Him, in Jesus the Son, can be united in Him, and they can become then sons like the true Son. They can be counted as Jesus Himself. God the Father can look on them at least in a certain way and see Jesus. And so they are counted as sons. They can enter into that sweet fellowship for which they were created. He redeems the Jews under the law so that they could become sons. But if you look at verse 6, he switches to you. It's not just we, the Jews. It's you, all the Galatians. So he's not just talking about the Jews. He's talking about everybody. Not only are we redeemed from our slavery to the elementary principles, but we're adopted as sons. And not only are we adopted as sons, we are given God's Spirit. That's to say, we become temples. Emmanuel, God with us, dwells within us. Where previously God could only dwell with his people in some ornate building in the center of their capital, now Christ dwells in our hearts through faith by his Spirit. We actually have, if we're believers, the Spirit of Christ in us. We have true and full fellowship with the Father. And I love what it says the Spirit causes us to call out. Abba, Aramaic for dad, Father, which is the Greek word for, it's the translated Greek word for dad. It puts it in two different languages. One of which was likely to be the mother tongue of many of the people he was writing to. It's like, it's not just some title. This is, this is your, your word, Father, that you, by His Spirit, can call out to the God who made the universe and call Him Father. What an amazing, intimate miracle. 
So we're, because, because God comes, we're redeemed. We're adopted. We're given God's Spirit. And all of that, all that is possible because, we're, because of our union with Christ. The Son comes so we can be sons. Because we're in Christ, we can have the Spirit of Christ. After the sermon, we're going to sing the song, All I Have is Christ. And we're going to call it, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And it's true, all I have is Christ. And in some ways that song's talking about compared to what the world could offer. But in Christ, I have redemption. In Christ, I'm adopted as a son. In Christ, I have the Spirit. Indeed, as we'll sing, Jesus is my life. And just to make sure we're all tracking, remember verses 4 to 7 are saying the longing is fulfilled. All that longing we talked about in the first three verses, it's now fulfilled. He was born to redeem so that we could receive adoption. And because He's redeemed, we receive the Spirit. The longing is fulfilled. And verse 7 then brings it all together. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jews are no longer slaves, they're sons. And if sons, they get to be heirs. Gentiles are no longer slaves, they're sons. And if sons, they get to be heirs. Earlier we saw that the heir was actually a slave prior to Christ's coming. And now we also see that the slave is actually an heir after Christ's coming. In other words, though there are some differences, at the core, there's really no difference. Jews don't get to become heirs simply because they have Abraham as their father. They get to be sons and heirs because they're united with Christ. So the Jewish Christian can sing, all I have is Christ. And that means the Jew and the Gentile are the same. Both need Christ. Both are slaves apart from Christ. In Greek mythology, Sisyphus, is punished by the gods. And the punishment is he has a lifetime of rolling this massive boulder up a hill. And what happens is every time he reaches, gets close to the top of the hill, the boulder's back down. And he has to keep pushing it and pushing it. If you're trying to earn your standing with God or whatever elementary principles you value. If you're trying to prove to God or others you belong, to earn your keep, so to speak, I'll just tell you right now, if you don't already, and I think you probably do already, you're going to feel like Sisyphus. You toil and work and strive And whenever you feel like you're getting close, all of a sudden you're back at square one again. 
But Christ shouldered that rock for you. And he got it all the way to the top of the hill. So if you are in him through faith, you don't have to carry that burden anymore. He has done it for you. We're redeemed from our enslavement to the elementary principles. We're redeemed from having to strive after those things. In American mythology, the little orphan Annie joins with her fellow orphans and sings. Maybe they're straight. As straight as a line don't really care as long as they're mine. And in those little words, that little little song, she gives voice to a deep desire for belonging. Almost belonging at any cost that we feel in the deepest places of our soul. Who are we? What is my identity? What is it that makes me, me? Where do I belong? What are my roots? And that longing is ultimately longing for family. It's ultimately longing for a father It's longing for a community that God alone can create for us. A community that sin has cut us off from. And a community that can be ours in Christ. Feel those longings? Christ is redeemed. Feel those longings? In Christ then we can be adopted. All because of Christ. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And so our deepest longings have been met. Let's pray. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, praise to Yahweh. Jesus is my life.